Some of you may know me very well and have known me for years. Some of you may not know me at all because this is your first time here. Some of you may be in between because you just see me doing notices every once in a while. Um, but So a quick bit about myself. Um, I'm Nathaniel. I'm a freelance writer. I write about travel and films. And um, if you were to ask any of my close friends about me for like a quick summary of me, the films would probably be the first thing that came up. Uh, I care more about Disney than any of your children do. Um, and in fact, sometimes when I babysit uh, Dan's kids, they're like, can we play football? And I'm like, no, let's watch Beauty and the Beast. Um, so that, that's a bit about me. And I, I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, and so I've, I've seen a lot of sermons in my time. And I know that the traditional thing to do is to break the ice, is to make yourself a little more likable to the crowd. So here's a picture of me with some babies. <laughs> so... so uh, the one that looks a bit like me is Malachi. These are my nephews, by the way. And the bafflingly ginger one is Boaz, uh, the first ginger in our family. Um, just, we have no idea where it came from. He was 10 pounds 10, and he's called Boaz. So, quite the character, but they're pretty much my favorite guys. Um, and now you're all thinking, hey, this guy's likable. He's good with kids. So now that um, you're all on my side, that's not, it's not relevant to the sermon at all. It's just a picture of me with some babies. And now you're like, yeah, we're rooting for you, Nathaniel. So, <laughs> so today I'm going to be talking um, uh, a bit about debate. Um, and this kind of has its origins in a time when uh, I was taking social anthropology as an outside course in first year, and there was a lecturer who everyone listened to because he would stride around the stage and talk with an accent that sounded a bit like King Julian, the lemur from Madagascar. <laughs> so everyone would listen to him, and he would stride around the stage saying stuff like, does everybody love in the same way? Does everybody hate? And we, uh, we just listened to him. And one time he goes, okay, who here believes in God? And a few people put their hands up. Uh, and who here would like to explain why they believe in God? I looked around and realized I was the only one with my hands still up. And I was like, oh, no. And he got me to stand up. This was like my second week of university, to stand up in front of about 300 social anthropology students and explain why I believed in God. And I said something. I think it's about religious experience. I don't really remember what I said. I just remember thinking afterwards, I probably could have said that a bit better. And kind of since then, I've, I've, I've tried to learn how to explain myself well to other non-Christians. Uh, and um, it's something I've been working on, something I've been reading about in the Bible and trying to get advice. And so I'm, I'm basically just going to be sharing my thoughts of what I've picked up from the Bible on how to debate. And it's an ongoing process. Last week I was talking to a friend who started referencing Kierkegaard and Camus. And I was like, yeah, okay. I totally get what you're talking about. So it's an ongoing thing. And I'm just sharing my feelings about how to debate. And we're going to start with um, a story of Paul um, in a slightly more high-pressure situation than a social anthropology lecture uh, in Acts 17. But I'm just going to pray um, before we read the Bible. Yeah, God, would you come and uh, speak to us all today? Uh, would you teach us your grace uh, in, in how we discuss things? And would you point us towards you and towards your son, Lord Jesus? Amen. So, uh, we're going to read from Acts 17, verses uh, 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So, what we've got here is Paul in Athens debating with anyone who'll listen to him. He's seen the idolatry of this city and uh, so he just start, his, his first instinct is to start reasoning with people uh, and then he gets invited to speak at the Areopagus, which... I guess the closest version of it today is a bit like the House of Lords, but it was, it was slightly more philosophical than that. It was sort of veteran statesmen who would gather. It was sort of like the Supreme Court of the area. Um, some Bible uh, scholars think that perhaps Paul was even on trial here. But uh, I'm, I'm going to go with uh, the version that he, they actually are just curious to hear because that seems to be suggested in the passage when it says... Um, they just love to hear new things. And I think there's just this intellectual curiosity. And I'm intrigued, what would you do in this situation when you brought before um, some, some veteran thinkers in the home of democracy, in the home of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle? And the thing is, that's not going to happen to all of us. But Athens back then is a lot like Edinburgh today. You see um, the National Monument up on Carlton Hill. That's... Uh, based on the Parthenon in, um, in Athens. Uh, we've sometimes been called Athens of the North. And we're the same kind of, we've got the same blend of intellectual sort of enlightenment philosophy. This is the home of um, the enlightenment after all. And, and we've got uh, paganism and we've got um, all sorts of other modern gods blended in with this very 
um, intellectual center. And actually, if you look at the people that um, he was talking to, they're the same kind of people that we might debate with today, although they wouldn't give themselves the name Epicureans and Stoics. So the Epicureans were materialists. They believed that gods didn't exist, and therefore it was unnecessary to seek God because either they don't exist or they're totally irrelevant if they do. And they stress the importance of pleasure and peace. Stoics um, were all about reason. We need reason to understand the universe. We need reason to understand ethics. And they placed a lot of emphasis on the individual, um, uh, his, his duty, his, um, like, an individual seeking to, to be a good person, essentially, self-sufficient and dutiful. And they, they were pantheists, so sort of like God is in everything. And this sounds familiar. You'll see uh, rehashes of these opinions today in the conversations that you have, just down the pub or whatever. These are the kind of things that people think about God today. And so Paul reasoned with them all, and uh, the result was three kinds. Uh, first, there was mockery, and that's pretty much par for the course for all of us. We will get mocked from time to time. Secondly, there was intrigue. We want to hear you again. And thirdly, there was a faith response. Some became Christians, including some of the influential thinkers, like Dionysus the Areopagite, who was named after a Greek god. So, uh, you know real transformation going on there. And I think that's why engaging with sort of cultural discussion is important. And I think we all do it to some level, whether you're, you know, in front of a massive crowd or whether it is just with your friends, because those are the kind of responses we can expect. If Athens is like Edinburgh, then we can probably aim for three kinds of things. Mockery, that's going to happen. People wanting to hear us again. We get to have further conversations with them and then some people believing. And that's what we're aiming for. You see, in the 21st century, we kind of need to earn the right to be heard. Okay, we're the odd ones out now. Christians are the odd ones out in our society. And so, in a way, the burden of proof, the burden of explanation is on us. Um, and if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't think that this is some kind of like sinister plot <laughs> that I'm teaching people like how to convert people. That's not what it's about. We just... What we believe is so incredibly important to us that we think it's important to share with other people as well. And actually, the first section is just going to be some really practical tips that apply whether you're um, a Christian or not. They're just tips on how to debate well and with grace that I've picked up from the Bible. Um, so that's what's going to happen. first part is just going to be some practical tips on how to debate, and then I'm going to look at where Jesus fits into everything. I'm not coming up with the answers to these debates. I'm not going to give you like uh, some magic bullet answers for why suffering exists, um, partly because they don't exist and partly because Luke did it last week. Um, I'm just going to look at how to debate, how to engage with these discussions. Um, and if you're a youth here, learn this stuff now because you'll be leagues ahead of your peers in this kind of thing, like in, in how to approach these things with grace and, and people will listen to you. So... Starting off with some practical tips. Um, my first one is to prepare some ready answers. Uh, often as Christians, we too readily accept society's lies about Christianity. I often hear things that are said about Christians just being accepted by Christians, such as like uh, Christians endorsed slavery or slavery was a Christian institution or divorce is just as common among Christians as it is among non-Christians. And I'll hear Christians saying these things being like, yeah, you're probably right, when neither of them are actually true. Uh, the slavery one, uh, 
you look in the Bible, uh, Philemon, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, they all turn the tables on slavery and tell masters to serve slaves, which sort of renders the whole institution a little bit defunct. And there were Christian campaigners against slavery from the 7th century. Thomas Aquinas, one of the major sorts of people who shaped Christian thought, uh, declared that slavery was a sin. And the abolition movement in the 18th and 19th centuries were led by Christians. So there are reposts that you can learn. And as for the divorce being just as likely among Christians, that's simply not true. A a recent study showed that um, you are significantly less likely to get divorced if you have um, an active faith and are rooted into a Christian or faith community. So we need to be able to shut down some of these things in their path and have ready arguments and look at what the most common objections are today. Experientially, this isn't based on any study, this is just the three things that I've come across the most, uh, reasons why people don't believe. One is suffering. Why does suffering exist uh, and how can that exist with a good God? The second is reason, being um, I can't reason the fact that a resurrection could have happened or the existence of God, ergo it doesn't. And the third one is sexuality. And I think these are the three, three biggest, I would say, objections that people have to Christianity. Come up with ready answers. The book of Proverbs uh, says that it's, it's a good thing to, to be able to respond to these things uh, and, and to, to think these things through. Uh, it says that the simple believe everything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. And to make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. Think it through in advance. Know what the personal arguments of your friends are, and then read up about it. There are great websites like Think Theology, Christianity Today, Desiring God, that all post articles on the most current debates. Or there are books uh, like The Reason for God by Tim Keller, or If God Then What by Andrew Wilson. Um, If sexuality is the sort of hot topic, there's a book called Is God Anti-Gay? That's really good, um, really accessible. Spoilers, he isn't. Um, And all of these books are, are just excellent tools. Learn in advance. My second practical tip would be to think wisely about social media. Now, I am a, a big tweeter. Uh, I have over 40,000 tweets, which I worked out recently is the length of a novel, um, <laughs> which is pretty depressing. Uh, so this isn't some sort of uh, grumpy old man saying, I don't understand the Twitters. This is, <laughs> this is like learning from painful experience here. Um, and you might be thinking, Hold on, the Bible doesn't say anything about social media. Well, I think the phrase, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion, (laughs) summarizes Facebook and Twitter quite well. You see, the problem with social media is that you don't know who your audience is, so once your post is there, it's there for everyone to see. And it's an outrage machine. It's fueled on outrage, on the latest thing that you can get angry about or sign a petition about. But it ends up losing an element of nuance. And it... It's quite self-serving as well. I'm well aware of this. That's why my Facebook posts are just linked to my own blogs and mocking my flatmates. Um, <laughs> but the problem is, if, if your uh, debates and discussions about faith end up being self-serving as well, then all you're doing is shouting into an empty void. They're not listening to you. You're not listening to them. And you're kind of just doing it for the likes. I'm not saying don't use social media at all. Um, I think uh, it... It can be good, but you can make your debates private or offline. Uh, The other thing is social media encourages sharing without thinking. So I've got a picture here that I heard was doing the rounds. 
Um, so it's a minion meme, they very shareable, and it says, as a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. Inspirational, isn't it? Very shareable, isn't it? Do you know who that quote is? Adolf Hitler, right? And this was doing the rounds, this minion meme, with a, a Hitler quote. So there's just, it, there's just a, kind of like a warning sign that just be careful what you share on social media because it, it encourages sharing without thinking, serving yourself. I think what it's great for is sharing stories, personal stories to build people up or like ways that you've been encouraged. Uh, but I think that debate is often hampered online. That's personal experience. Um, the third point is, uh, practical tip, is to engage with culture. Now, Paul finds common ground here. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And then later on, he quotes from Stoic poets. So he says, in him we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed his offspring. They're not scripture quotes, they're quotes from contemporary poets that Stoic philosophers would have been reading. Now that's kind of controversial. Is Paul saying that the unknown God is the God that we worship? Is he saying, read these guys, they've got God sorted? No, what he's doing is he's using the language of the day to point towards God and to point towards Jesus. So we need to do similar things. Find out, With the unknown God thing, he's finding a way to talk about how they're already seeking God. And so you find your way into conversations as well. Find out what it is that people really care about. Perhaps it's social justice. Talk about how God is a God of justice and the biblical provocations to care for the poor. Perhaps it's family. Talk about God as a father. Use the things that are important to them to find your way in. And as for the poetry, well, culture all around us is creativity, and creativity is actually a reflection of, of God as the creator. And I think that in most elements of creativity, you can find people are looking for God. And you just need to, you just need to be able to pick up on it, find out what people are into. For me, it's always going to be films, and a lot of my friends are into films as well, naturally. And so just to take an example from last year, there was a film called Boyhood. It's great if you haven't seen it. Three hours long. Uh, but it's a, it's a drama about a boy growing up, essentially, and working out who he wants to become. And at the end of it, he goes off to college. And there's this really heartbreaking scene with his mum where she breaks down and she says, I thought there would be more than this. I've gone through all of these things in life. Uh, you know, I've, I've been married, I've been divorced, I've bought houses, I've had kids, I've seen the kids grow up, I've seen them go off to college. What next? My funeral? And she's like, I thought there would be more than this. And I think that's a really profound expression of people searching for God, but they won't call it that. Now, if I was having a conversation about boyhood with one of my friends, I'd just be like, do you think this is it? Do you think that's actually a reflection of you as well? What are your aims? And is that enough? Is there more than this? And there's examples all over culture. Um, and you just need to find the things that you're into and just have a look and just see where people are looking for God and perhaps calling him by the wrong name. And then Paul proved that God was better than anything they were worshipping. Um, he talks about him being the, the God who created everything and sustains us and doesn't need us at all. That's in direct contrast to like Zeus and all the Olympian gods who were really petty and squabbled and um, didn't create much themselves. 
Uh, in fact, I think they killed the people that created the earth. And so he's, he's, he's got this direct contrast in saying, this is better. This is what you're looking for. This unknown God, let me tell you about my God. My next tip is to avoid needless controversy. Uh, I'm a big fan of nuance. I think that most things are nuanced. Very rarely will you find something being black, black and white. And I think that if you make blanket statements when you're discussing faith with people, uh, you often lose out on the subtlety behind many of the arguments. And if you throw in words like sin, they're not people aren't necessarily going to understand what you're talking about because they will have preconceptions about what that word means. Now, when you're talking to me about it, I know what you mean. I know where you're coming from. You're, you, because I, we both believe in grace. We both believe in in Jesus' power to overcome sin. But if you use that word just in a throwaway statement, you're almost cementing their preconceptions. And, and the thing is, debate today has become very heated. Okay? Uh, it's all about who can come up with the most, uh, the, the most compelling opinion piece uh, on The Guardian, or who can have the most withering put-down. And people are slowly being pushed to extremes in internet culture because you, you have to click on it and you've got to read it, and generally that encourages more extreme opinions. We should reject that kind of polarized extreme opinions because uh, the Bible has quite a lot to say about it, actually. Uh, it says that starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. And a fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. And in Timothy, it says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the thing is, you'll find something every day to disagree with. Every day, there'll be some opinion that you think, do you know what? I just don't agree with you on that one. And there are times when we absolutely should stand up and fight, and fight for righteousness. But I think you need to pick your battles. And I'm just, this is something you learn um, and continue to learn, but I'm just picking that up from the Bible, that if you can avoid controversy, do. And I think if winning an argument means causing an irreparable division, just leave the argument. It's not that important. Colossians says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I think we need to be gracious. I think we need to be winsome. And sometimes it's better just to leave it out. Which brings me on to my final practical tip, which is know when to keep quiet. Paul was clearly disturbed by the amount of idolatry in Athens. Uh, and he, he went on to talk about it um, at some length. But he didn't rant, he didn't rave. And we know that he can do that. And I think sometimes we actually need to keep quiet. The Bible says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Uh, and also says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Uh, the guy who started the Alpha Course, Nicky Gumbel, uh, phrased it this way, be a good listener, your ears will never get you into trouble. <laughs> the thing is, this is difficult, and those of you who know me might be like, hang on, Nathaniel. <laughs> hang on, practice what you preach here. Um, and it's true, I do talk a lot, I do have opinions that I will gladly share. Um, but the thing is, chances are, if I've had one of these conversations with you, it's because I know you and I have a relationship with you. And so I think that's a, a safe space to have a, like a lively exchange of ideas. But often, I will keep quiet. If it's in a more public setting, you just, you just have to restrain yourself. And it's an act of trust. 
Because I often think I know best, <laughs> and I want to share that with people, so it's an act of trust in God that actually he doesn't need me to say that. He doesn't need me to stand up for him necessarily. Um, and I have to trust that God's going to be working in that person's heart anyway. So know when to keep quiet and trust in God. You'll learn that one. Um, and yeah. So those are some practical tips. Um, just to recap them on the recap screen. Think wisely about social media. Engage with culture. Prepare ready answers. Avoid needless controversy. And know when to stay quiet. But just like last week, after Luke wrote his letter uh, explaining um, why suffering and God can coexist, and then said, this isn't quite enough. The same is true here. Um, these are just practical tips, but actually, we need to bring Jesus into every debate we have. And I think we can do that in three ways. Uh, and we're going to learn a bit from Paul again here and from some of Jesus' words. So the first thing we need to do is represent Jesus. It says, uh, it, Matthew, it says in Matthew, this is Jesus talking, he says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And I think that's uh, a call on all Christians to be light in darkness. We have to be winsome. We have to draw people to us. Uh, we, we, want, we want people to, to be able to listen to us. And that involves talking with grace and speaking everything out of a position of love. If you think back to previous sermons uh, there was, uh, that we've had over this Wise Living series, we had uh, Dave Hill, who told us um, that all of our foolish words will be called into account on Judgment Day. Um, I was chatting to Dave about it afterwards, and he was like, that one must have been relevant to you. <laughs> uh, and then there, was, um, then there was Mike Hale, who said to a room, in a wealthy part of a wealthy city of a wealthy nation that were all too wealthy and should give more money away. These are controversial opinions, things that I mean, certainly spoke to me, like pointed like right at the heart and provoked me. These aren't easy things to hear, and yet we all listened and we all learned because of the heart behind their message, because we knew that they were speaking to us out of a place of love, and all of our discourse should be like that. And today you've listened to me, and I've been even more controversial. I mean, I've quoted Hitler and said that you should stay off Facebook. It doesn't get much more controversial than that. But hopefully you're listening to me because I showed this picture at the beginning. You see, <laughs> it's relevant in the end. It's relevant in the end. Um, the thing is, we want to win people's hearts, not arguments, okay? We want to make our conversations human, not abstract, Talk to people's lives, talk to people's relationships, and represent Jesus in everything you say. This doesn't mean we water down our opinions or don't tell people what they need to know, but it's about the heart behind our message. Uh, the second uh, thing is be filled with the Spirit. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And some of you may be thinking, this is fine for you, this is something clearly you care about a lot, but what about me? I always freeze up when I get into these conversations. Although well, good news is, we have help. God's power is made perfect in our weakness, it says in Corinthians, and we are all weak on this. And when Jesus was sending out his disciples, uh, he, he sort of had a prophetic command to them 
because he told them how to go out, but then it, he expanded it to being about sort of everyone evangelizing in the future. But he says to them, he says, when they arrest you, do not worry about what you say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Many of us are unlikely to be arrested for sharing the gospel. It could happen, but it's unlikely. But I still think that this promise of the Spirit speaking through us applies to evangelism. It's the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit living in us, guiding us, guiding our words. Uh, an example of this um, was a surreal experience for me. Uh, I was traveling through India on my own uh, and I met some, a French couple who were staying in the same place that I was. And they were like, oh, we're going to the beach. Do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, sure. They didn't speak very good English. So we were getting by on my French, which I'm pretty proud of, right? I'll, I'll whip out my French whenever I can, because like, not everyone can speak a second language. So I'll hear someone French and I'll be like, uh -huh, bonjour. But <laughs> it's not actually that good, uh, as our good friend Kesso told me recently, actually. She, she said, man, your French has got worse. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it has. Uh, and I ended up talking in French, sat on a beach in India. So, French, India, beach, I, I didn't know what was going on, to a guy who turned out was a philosophy professor at a French university and an atheist. And I was talking to him about why we need God in our lives. He was quoting philosophers at me. Uh, and I, w I was having, and the conversation went on for over an hour. Now, I can promise you, my French is not good enough to have carried that conversation. I mean, my English probably wouldn't have been anyway. <laughs> I, I prayed before before, like, when I realized that was the, like, the direction the conversation was going. And I firmly believe that it was the Spirit giving me words. And I, I was there in a point of weakness, and his power was made known. I'll never see those guys again. I just have to trust God that uh, he's working in their hearts, and maybe they'll remember that conversation one day. Like, hey, I was on a beach in India one time. <laughs> um, have confidence in the power of the gospel, and the power of the Spirit in you. And at the end, we're actually going to pray where if you feel deeply underconfident about entering into these conversations, we're going to pray for you to be filled with the Spirit. And my final point, and by far the most important one I'll make today, so really listen to this. If you've not listened to anything else, listen to this one. Every debate should lead to Jesus. Every conversation you have should lead to Jesus. Every question should lead to Jesus. Jesus, not your intellect or debating prowess, should be the real winner in any conversation. Look at Paul. He's just dazzled some of the most intelligent people in the civilized world with rhetoric, with cultural engagement, and he takes it back to Jesus. He says, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He highlights Jesus' power through the fact of his resurrection. He says, we know that Jesus' claims were real because he was resurrected. Stephen did this before he got executed. He sort of gave them a, a potted history of the Exodus and then moved on to being about Jesus, and actually accused the people who were about to kill him of murdering the Messiah, and then said, looked up and said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Peter did it at Pentecost when he told the story of Israel's history and said, this is how it culminates in Jesus. Everything you do should end in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So what are people's questions? And then point them towards Jesus. Maybe the one we keep coming back to, suffering, maybe that's what they're wondering about. We'll point them to Jesus who suffered out of his love for us. Point them to the Son of God who forsook glory to live as one of us and to die so that we might live and suffered with us and promised to be with us through everything we endure. And then point them to the end of times when Jesus will come again and make all wrong things right. Maybe their their sticking point with Christianity is ethical. Maybe they have an objection to sin. We'll point them towards Jesus who loved the despised and the rejected, who accepted sinners at every level of society, who died so that whatever our lives, if we turn to Christ, we can have a relationship with God, restored, and we have a promise of eternal life. Maybe they say, I just don't think the church has a good track record throughout history. Point them to Jesus, the most perfect man who ever lived. Maybe they think all religions are the same. Point them to the uniqueness of Jesus. Whatever their objections, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. Point them to the cross and resurrection. Learn your doctrine. Sing of Christ. Make him the center of everything you do. And be sure of what you believe. And if you're here today and you aren't a Christian and you're wondering why we're so determined to keep telling you about our faith, this is why. Because it is good news to us. We believe that humans severed their relationship with God. We rebelled against him. And then God won us back through the person of Jesus who came and lived among us and loved everyone he met and taught the best teaching you'll ever hear and healed people and then was crucified and died, the most horrible form of execution you can imagine. And he died taking on our punishment. But he rose again, defeating death that should have had a claim over us. But now it doesn't because of Jesus' sacrifice. And now our relationship with God is restored and we can live with him and he lives in us and our lives are utterly, utterly transformed by this good news. Like this is the best thing. Ask any Christian in the room. It's the best thing that's happened to any of us and that's why we're so determined to share it with everyone because we want your lives to be transformed too. We think it's good news and good news deserves to be shared. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me but that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not die but will have eternal life. That essentially is the good news of Christianity. That's what we believe. That's what we want to share. That's why we engage in these discussions. Christians here, that's why you debate. That's, that's our end goal, isn't it? We want to see people added to the kingdom. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see the broken made whole. So that's why we do it. And and in everything, we need to represent Jesus. We need to be filled with his power through the Holy Spirit. And we need to point towards him in every area of our conversation. At the end of the day, it's all about him. All this advice and wise living we've had over summer, it's about Jesus. All I've said about engaging with culture, it's about him. It's about living for him, living with him, living with him in us. So um, 
Now we're going to actually sing a song, just declaring what we believe if the band could come back up. We're just going to sing one that just reaffirms the, the goodness of God, the power of his sacrifice. And let's look to him as we do that. As we sing, let's just think about everything that Jesus has done for us and just let the truth of it settle in our hearts. And then um, I'm going to lead us in some prayer after that.